What's up, guys? It's January 11th, 2020. And this is the first episode of FritzCast in 2020. I, uh, I kind of drug it out until the next episode. We had a year-end episode last uh, last week. Well, last week-ish, week and a half ago. Whatever you want to call it. That's when we did the last episode. It was a year-end thing. It was a, you know, it was, it was a nice little episode. I wasn't, uh, wasn't too happy with it. I kind of rushed it out. Um, this episode, however, not rushed out. But, you know, that's the breaks sometimes. Uh, a lot has happened breaking into the 2020 year uh, in such a short span of time. It's, it's literally, it's only the 11th and so much has happened. And we're going to cover uh, the, the, a, a plethora of these topics one by one. And some of it's going to be awesome, some of it's going to be great, some of it might even, you know, have some yucks and some funniness in it and all that, and others might piss people off, you know, I don't, uh, I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen here, there's, there's been lots of Twitter drama going on, I'm not getting into Twitter drama between, betwixt folks, I'm not doing that, I am but a casual observer when it comes to in-depth Twitter feuding, <laughs> I'm not... You know, it's, yeah, I only have 2,600 followers, all right? It's, it's minuscule compared to these people who have 15,000, 30,000 people going at it. Uh, I don't know what that's like. I really don't. But uh, I hope you've all had a good start to your new year. It's 2020. We are, we are in the endgame now. And uh, things are heating up. There's lots of stuff going on. Surprisingly, up until this point, we haven't had a lot of impeachment talk. Uh, it's been overshadowed by other events. Uh, really surprising to me. Thankfully, now I'm just I, I I finished up working two overtimes and and I am on um, two weeks of my parental leave, which I broke up uh, throughout the months. Following my my daughter's birth, I really do enjoy these th- this time that I get to break up, take off of work. It's it's given me time to be home. It's given me time to feel like I'm helpful. Uh, there you know, there's lots of th- uh, there's lots of people who probably don't get the opportunity to, and it should be something that that I think businesses should strive for. Uh, I, I've seen, I've personally experienced the benefits of being able to take, you know, a month off of work. Not, not many people can say they've taken a whole month off of work after, you know, the birth of, of their child, especially fathers might not be able to say that. And, and to be able to take a month off, have paycheck, have a paycheck rolling in, but be, being able to be home and, and help was, was an amazing experience. And these these little two week breaks that I get here and there, they're, they're also just great experiences. Just be just be able to be home and spend all day with the kid. I swear, it it it, it I love it, absolutely. It is great bonding time, for real. So, for me at least anyway, it's been a busy couple of uh, you know days, a, a week or so. Uh, at the beginning of the month here, the beginning of the new year, uh, because when I know I'm going off, I, I 
pile up on overtime. But despite the fact that I've done that, I, I've been able to dive into some of these subjects uh, a little deeper and heavier than than I normally do. And that's been important for the events that have unfolded, which I think we should just dive right into. And it all starts with the fact that, uh, well, let's just lay it out. Towards the end of December, our United States Embassy in Baghdad was, uh, you know, attacked, more or less. Despite how some people want to want to phrase it, I'm actually looking at photos right now of damage to the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. Following, it was an attack by supporters of Iran-backed militia, which they set fires. They kind of encircled the place and, and imprisoned soldiers and contractors within the building. Uh, we managed to disperse that, um, with a hundred Marines, uh, with special purpose Marine air ground task force crisis response. Uh, they were dispatched to the embassy and, uh, things broke up. Now, from my understanding from news reports and, uh, from, from some of the other podcasters I listened to. From my understanding, at, at that point, they uh, dove in and found that these Iran-backed militia was, uh, you know, under the good blessing of Iranians' number two government figure, uh, General Qasim Soleimani. So, what does President Trump do in response? Well, he's given several options that he can respond to what happened to this US to the US embassy in Baghdad. There was a big argument between people over that attack itself and what our responses could be in that case. Because a lot of people when they argue about this thing, they they talk about they always say, you know, oh, US embassies are sovereign soils. Embassies are sovereign soil. They're an extension of the country that they represent. So if it's a U.S. embassy in Baghdad, that's U.S. soil, as some people say. But it's not true. It's actually not true. The governing document on embassies and occupations of, of buildings like that of that nature for diplomatic purposes and all that. That's governed by the Vienna Convention. Fun fact, the United States is a signatory of the Vienna Convention. And in Articles 21 through 25, it lays out embassies and how they work in foreign territory. In the Vienna Convention, it states that the uh, premise of a mission shall be inviolable. Nobody can enter the mission without permission. This includes the host country. The receiving state is under a special duty to take all appropriate steps to protect the premises of the mission against any intrusion or damage and to prevent any disturbance of the peace of the mission or impairment of its dignity. 
basically, an embassy, if you think an embassy is sovereign soil, if you think the United States embassies around the world are just an extension of the United States and it's U.S. soil, you're technically wrong. You are technically and legally wrong because we have uh, come to these agreements with other nations on how this thing works. So a lot of that might be just sensationalism and, and too many movies and television shows where we see, you know, oh, if they just run to the U.S. Embassy through the gates and they land on the soil, they're on sovereign soil and they're protected. Not so much. A host country can kick out uh, an, an embassy uh, or the occupants of an embassy. Absolutely, they can. That's disputable. And mind you, they're treated differently, though. They're not treated just as the foreign soil of the host nation. There's a lot of tact and diplomacy that goes into that, and that changes that up. So let me just say, if one of our United States embassies that is in a nation that has agreed to have us there, have an embassy there, if our people are in that embassy, and that embassy comes under attack, even though the foreign country that possesses the soil and the land around the embassy, even though that they have a duty in a diplomatic sense, in these, in the, according to the Vienna Convention at least anyway, even though they have a duty to protect, I believe, and I believe any nation would suspect that that nation's embassy will do what it feels it must to protect its embassy, but at least, if not protect the building, the physical structure of the embassy, at least its own people within those confines. Now, of course, we've had uh, uh, brilliant examples of, of things like Benghazi and, and things of that nature. What happened in Baghdad was no Benghazi. Some people say it's because of how Trump responded. We'll get to that in a minute. So that happened. Trump is given, is briefed and given a, a plethora of options of how he can respond to this. And apparently one of the more extreme options was, hey, we know where uh, Iranian General uh, Qasim Soleimani, uh, Soleimani is. Uh, he has been responsible for hundreds of United States personnel death throughout the Iraq war. He's more or less a terrorist. He's a bad guy. We can take him out. He actually, according to the intelligence at least, was organizing and pushing these attacks against ourselves, America, uh, in this foreign land. So Trump says, yeah, let's go ahead, let's, let's do it. And we proceeded to drone bomb Soleimani. And uh, that went off without a hitch. Nobody knew about it. We just woke up and, and the news told us, you know, hey, Iranians' number two government official military leader, Qasim Soleimani, uh, Soleimani, my bad, I keep butchering the name and I apologize for that. Uh, has been hit and he's dead. Yay, Trump. MAGA. 
Then this nation spiraled off into big, bitter arguments against each other because of what Trump did and because of how Iran responded. Iran responded by shooting off something along the lines of 16 missiles at U.S. forces in Iraq. They didn't hit anything. They didn't. They didn't do anything. Um, I, you know, it's it's probably a little bit foolish to think that we, wherever we are, don't have self-defensive measures in place. It's probably stupid to to think that. Just as I think it's probably stupid to think that Iran doesn't have the capabilities of targeting bases and and making a splash. If they wanted to. My whole thing was that Trump pulled this off. Most people on the surface don't care about the fact that Soleimani is dead. There's probably a fair amount of Iranians who actually, like Iranian citizens, that actually are probably happy he's dead. Because... He was a bad guy. He has a has a pretty big track record of, uh, of of history throughout the Iraq War, which is a, a very debatable war, and we can get into some nuances about that in a minute. He did and was a key strategist in fighting ISIS and ISIL, though, which is something that I bring out as an example of why we shouldn't be fucking around in the region, <laughs> because you have... So many different factions fighting against each other at each other's throats in that area that it just seems like a lost cause for America to be a driving force. But whether we go about did Donald Trump do something, did President Trump do something illegal? He's nearly started a war with Iran. Remember, Iran shot off something like 15, 16 ballistics missiles. And then what happened that night? But a Ukrainian plane took off from Iran, from Tehran, I believe. Took off. And Iran admitted today that thanks to human error and, quote, uh, American adventurism... I think it was, that they accidentally shot down that plane. And there's video of this where you can watch the plane go down. There's video of of a unidentified kind of surface-to-air missile that explodes in the vicinity of the plane. The From what I've seen, what what it is is a, it's a rocket that shoots up and then blows up with shrapnel that would damage a flying object like a plane. And if you watch the video, that's exactly what happens. It goes and you watch a plane light on fire and it slowly goes down and then boom crashes and that's like a hundred somewhere between 160 and 180 people dead instantaneously because Iran was panicked you know i'm not going to say that they were wrong to be panicked we did kind of take out their general and say you know try me but in a panic they see this plane they claim that they tried to make contact with this plane and that it did not respond to contact 
and they were afraid that it was some American plane, and so they shot it down. One shot, one missile, shot it down. And they're admitting fault. They originally were saying that they had the black box and they weren't going to give it up, which is suspicious, but in Iran's position where they just said that uh, they were going to strike at America, fired off all these missiles, didn't hit anything, and then suddenly also hit a plane accidentally. Doesn't look good for you. And then there's finger pointing. Who's to blame? There's, There's plenty of people who would blame Donald Trump first and foremost because he escalated tensions. Which, I mean, if you kill another country's military leader, you think tensions are going to get a little high? Probably. There's speculation that uh, that Iran's counterattack, which which did no damage whatsoever, had no casualties whatsoever, was just to save face. Could have been. Could have been. Can't really speculate, but... The real argument comes down to, oh, D- D- Donald Trump. Is is what Donald Trump did legal? Well, to go over that, you need to go all the way back. You have to think all the way back to September 11th, 2001. We all know what happened September 11th, 2001. Some people have big conspiracy theories about that. I'm telling you, I'm not as big an inside job conspiracy theorist as some of you are out there. I'm, I, I think a lot of that is nonsensical. Now, was that event used? Hell, yes, it was. How could it have not been used? Because in the aftermath of 9-11, people were panicked. People were scared. But most importantly, people were angry. Angry and vengeful. The law we have to talk about for a lot of this business is the authorization for use of military force, which is usually summed up as AUMF. And this became law September 18th, 2001. It was debated and brought before the House and the Senate on September 14th, 2001. And that joint resolution states, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it states, uh, whereas on September 11th, 2001, acts of treacherous, treacherous violence were committed against the United States and its citizens, and whereas such acts render it both necessary and appropriate that the United States exercise its rights to self-defense and to protect United States citizens both at home and abroad, and whereas in light of the threat to the national security and foreign policy of the United States posed by these grave acts of violence, and whereas such acts continue to pose an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security and foreign policy of the United States, and whereas the president has the authority under the Constitution to take action to deter and prevent acts of international terrorism against the United States, now therefore be it resolved by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled. 
Section 2 in general, that the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, and or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001, or harbored such organizations or persons. And there's a subsection B of Section 2 about the War Powers Resolution stating, quote, The Congress declares that this section is intended to constitute specific statutory authorization within the meaning of Section 5B of the War Powers Resolution. Nothing in this resolution supersedes any requirements of the War Powers. If you need to be familiarized with the War Powers, that is Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11 of the U.S. Constitution, often referred to as the War Powers Clause, vests in the Congress the power to declare war, and in the following wording, the Congress shall have power to declare war, grant letters of mark and reprisal, and make rules concerning captures on land and water. A.K.A. The power to declare war lies with the Congress. At least it's supposed to lie with the Congress. That bill was passed unanimously by the Senate. And in the House of Representatives, there was a single nay vote from Representative Barbara Lee, a Democrat from California, why would Barbara Lee oppose this legislation, which obviously had good intentions of killing the bad guys, killing terrorists? It was giving the president authority to, if we had the intelligence, immediately go after the bad guys. Why would Barbara Lee oppose that? Is it because she was a terrorist sympathizer? Because she felt America got what it deserved? Is that what it was? No. Barbara Lee on why she voted nay on 9-14-2001. gentleman from California is uh, recognized for a minute and a half. Thank you, and I want to thank our ranking member and my friend for yielding. Mr. Speaker, members, I rise today really with a very heavy heart, one that is filled with sorrow for the families and the loved ones who were killed and injured this week. Only the most foolish and the most callous would not understand the grief that has really gripped our people and millions across the world. This unspeakable act on the United States has really forced me, however, to rely on my moral compass, my conscience, and my God for direction. September 11th changed the world. Our deepest fears now haunt us. Yet I am convinced that military action will not prevent further acts of international terrorism against the United States. This is a very complex and complicated matter. Now, this resolution will pass, although we all know that the president can wage a war even without it. However difficult this vote may be, some of us 
must urge the use of restraint. Our country is in a state of mourning. Some of us must say, let's step back for a moment, let's just pause just for a minute and think through the implications of our actions today so that this does not spiral out of control. Now, I have agonized over this vote, but I came to grips with it today, and I came to grips with opposing this resolution during the very painful, yet very beautiful memorial service. As a member of the clergy so eloquently said, as we act, let us not become the evil that we deplore. Thank you, and I yield the balance of my time. Gentlewoman's time has expired. Now, that was probably a message that most people didn't want to hear at the at the time. It was, it was, a, not even what three four days after nine uh, eleven occurred. But Barbara Lee stood up, believing that it could potentially be an abuse of executive power. She was the nay vote at the time. The nay defector. Now, we would have more people defecting. And we do. We have some very notable people, some Republicans even, who are coming out of the woodworks about looking at the AUMF, which Barbara Lee has consistently throughout her career tried to repeal. Chairman, first let me just thank the Rules Committee, uh, Chairman, Mr. Sessions, and our ranking member, Slaughter, and all of the members of the committee for making this amendment in order. My amendment is very straightforward. It would have days of enactment of this act repeal the 2001 authorization to use military force which Congress passed into law September 14, 2001. And when we repeal this 2001 authorization to use military force, Congress would finally be forced to debate and vote on a specific AUMF to address the ISIL threat. Now, I voted against the 2001 authorization because I believed it opened the door for any president to wage endless war without a congressional debate or a vote. And I believe, quite frankly, that history has borne that out. That was 2017, which actually her amendment did pass the House Appropriations Committee. This was back in 2017. However, while it was agreed on, uh, the House Rules Committee removed it. She took to Twitter on July 18, 2017, accusing Speaker Paul Ryan of having the measure stripped, stating, This is underhanded and undemocratic. The people deserve a debate. An Inside Defense article highlighting this, that was published on July 19th, states that, the AUMF, which was passed shortly after the terrorist attacks of 9-11, along with a 2002 authorization for the Iraq War, have been used dozens of times in the past 16 years to justify military actions in over 14 countries. That started with uh, Bush's expansion into the disastrous Iraq War. My fellow citizens... 
At this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. More than 35 countries are giving crucial support, from the use of naval and air bases, to help with intelligence and logistics, to the deployment of combat units. Every nation in this coalition has chosen to bear the duty and share the honor of serving in our common defense. When we talk about the Iraq war, we talk about America, 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 and what people don't realize is that there was a multinational force, often referred to as the coalition forces, which was led by the United States, Operation Iraqi Freedom, the United Kingdom, Operation Telic, Australia, Spain, and Poland, that all worked together, along with NATO training mission, UN assistance, Republic of Iraq, and our opponents, of course, were uh, Jamaa al-Tawhid wal-Jihad, al-Qaeda in Iraq, Mujahideen Shura Council, the Islamic State of Iraq, and Khatib Hezbollah which strung out into this big, drawn-out, long conflict that they say ended in 2011, but let's be honest, it didn't actually end in 2011. At the time, that was that was the thing, and, and, and this AUMF continually was expanded on and allowed in the NDAA Acts of the National Defense Authorization Acts. Uh, time and again. All right. And Barack Obama manned countless drone strikes, killing both terrorists and civilians. So when we talk about Donald Trump doing things off the cuff, Obama killed a lot of people. <laughs> Let's just say that. A lot. He expanded countries that he could bomb via drones and he had no problem stepping up and trying to justify his use of it interest operations would be authorized for rescue missions uh, taking out isis leaders uh, calling in airstrikes and intelligence how is that not mission creep well because jim the president has been clear about this i think from the very beginning uh, that this kind of large-scale long-term uh, commitment of U.S. ground troops uh, is not a successful strategy. But short of a, a large-scale, long-term operation, you can expand the operation under this authorization. Well, what we the, have... The language is fuzzy, is it not? Uh, intentionally so. Uh, and the, the intent intentionally is... Intentionally so. The, the yes. language is intentionally fuzzy. Yes, Jim, because we believe it's important that there aren't overly burdensome constraints that are placed on the commander-in-chief who needs the flexibility to be able to respond to contingencies that emerge uh, in a uh, chaotic military conflict like this. So the fact of the matter is we do need the President of the United States and the Commander-in-Chief, uh, both this one and the next one, to have the ability to respond to specific contingencies. That if there is the need 
to order military action uh, within these constraints, but that is in clearly in the best interest of the United States or the safety and security of our military personnel, then the Commander-in-Chief needs to have the ability uh, to order that military action and to do it quickly without seeking uh, additional specific uh, authorization from the Congress. And the, the three-year time limit does tie the hands of his successor, does it not? Uh, how so? If a future president, if the next president wants to go longer than three years, than 2018, he's going to have to go back or she's going to have to go back to Congress. Well, it is true that this authorization uh, to use military force would expire, uh, based on the way that, the, that, that this draft reads, would expire three years after Congress uh, passes it. And uh, the President believes that it, that is an appropriate period of time for, uh, for our military to implement a strategy and for us to measure what kind of progress is being made and whether or not the national security interests of the United States uh, are being appropriately advanced. Oh boy, that was 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018 was when it was up, which Donald Trump had already been elected by then. And then, oh, yeah, they kind of just keep continually passing this thing. So, uh, you know, what we want to look at now is the uh, the NDAA, the National Defense Authori Authorization Act uh, for fiscal year 2020. Uh, which was something like $700 billion of an increase um, in spending. The measure title and original bill to authorize appropriations for fiscal year 2020 for military activities of the Department of Defense, for military construction, and for defense activities of the Department of Energy to prescribe military personnel strengths for such fiscal year and for other purposes. And this, I, I found this incredibly interesting last night as I was researching this. I just want, you know, to, to put it out there, okay? So the House vote, the final vote results for roll call 672, which the question was on agreeing to the conference report, the bill title was the National, National Defense Authorization, Authorization Act for fiscal year 2020. The yeas was... 188 Democrats, yay, 41 nay, three not voting. Republicans was 189, yay, six nay, two not voting. And the Independents, which is Justin Amash, uh, was one. He voted nay. So it was 377 to 48 yays in the House. And obviously 41 Democrats said nay. Six Republicans said nay. Justin Amash said nay. Uh, very surprising uh, to see. But people need to realize some of the names. Obviously, Justin Amash uh, was a name for the nays. Um, as was Thomas Massey. Rand Paul's colleague, and uh, Tulsi Gabbard was also a nay. And then there was a handful of people not voting, but we're not going to touch that one for the House um, because it was five not voting for the House. The real dirty details of the NDAA 2020 is the Senate vote. This took place December 17th, just a few short weeks ago. 
And there's something very telling in this that I didn't I didn't realize because I wasn't reading it because I didn't care at the time. I should have cared at the time, but I didn't I didn't care enough. The Senate resolution of that same bill passed with 86 yays, 8 nays, and this one is the telling one, 6 not voting. And you're not going to believe the six that were not voting when I tell you. Wouldn't you know it? Let, let me just tell. Let me tell you the nays first, okay? Of the nays, Christian Gildebrand from New York, she voted nay. Mike Lee from Utah, he voted nay. Rand. Paul, Rand Paul voted nay. Wow. Of the eight nays, there's actually two principled Republicans in there, and then Christian Gildebrand. Not voting, though. Not voting. I want you to, to listen to these names that were not voting on the NDAA 2020 bill. Cory Booker from New Jersey. Kamala Harris from California. Amy Klobacher from Minnesota. Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts. Bernie Sanders from Vermont. Well, those are all 2020 Democratic candidates for president. How surprising that they didn't even vote on the NDAA 2020 bill. Very peculiar indeed because most of them, if you Google this, you can Google it and look up the news sources yourself. Most of them were preaching about how they would not support it. And I suppose not voting is not supporting it, but I don't take that as opposition to it fully. You see... People give Tulsi Gabbard shit for voting present on the impeachment vote in the House. They give her shit for that, despite the fact that she came out and gave an explanation as to why she thought impeachment was a bad move for Democrats. Because it was partisan. So she voted present, meaning that she was there, she listened to everything, and... She just wanted to vote present. Whatever. I don't see that as bad as specifically not voting on a bill. Not at all. Madam Speaker, there's two times we're going to be called to account for our votes here in Congress. One is at our next election. The other is when we draw our last breath of air. I'm more concerned about the latter myself. This vote isn't about supporting or opposing President Trump. I voted for President Trump. I plan to vote for President Trump again. This vote is about exercising our constitutional authority, but more importantly, our moral obligation to decide when and where our troops are going to be asked to give their lives. Congress needs to do more of what we're doing here today. 
We need to debate our involvement in Afghanistan. And then we need to bring our troops home. We need to debate our involvement in Iraq. And then we need to bring our troops home. And we certainly don't need another war. And if we do go to war, it needs to be with the blessing and the support of the people and a mission that our soldiers can accomplish. And we do that by following the vision of our founding fathers. We debate it here on the floor of the House. That's what this resolution is about. I urge my colleagues to vote yes. And I yield back. I was Thomas Massey talking about the war powers because now there's a push to strip down the AUMF. And what did Mike Lee and Rand Paul have to say on this? On the Iran strike? Mind you, Trump kills Soleimani, some other top Iranian government officials, and everybody wants to lose their mind, kind of. Which I, you know... I'm torn on it. I'm a little split. But if we go off Imam Tawhidi, the Imam of Peace on Twitter, quoting a tweet here. Quote, Trump killed one Iranian, Soleimani. He killed a couple more. Okay, but whatever. He didn't kill innocents. The regime in Iran then, one, blocked roads to create a sea of humans during his funeral, causing a stampede, 40-plus dead. 50 or 60-plus dead, the last I read, actually. Uh, which they did do. Everybody talking about how Iranian came out, how Iran came out in full force to have this funeral and honor and all that. Not, not so much. Not so much. Uh, they shot down the plane that killed uh, over 176 people. They then blamed it on... Trump, even though they've admitted responsibility, it should be known that they do blame it on American adventurism or whatever. So Iran's death count now is somewhere in the 200s in the past couple of days. Really? Really? I get it. I don't want Trump to act. I don't want anybody. I don't want any president to act off the cuff. And again, I don't think anybody really cares that Soleimani's dead. Here's um, um, Chuck Schumer on, on Soleimani. Last night, the United States conducted a military operation designed to kill Major General Qasim Soleimani, a notorious terrorist. No one should shed a tear over his death. The operation against Soleimani in Iraq was conducted, however, without specific authorization and any advance notification or consultation with Congress. We discussed that. Congress and the Senate willingly gave a lot of power to the executive branch, and they didn't think about it. Who thought about it? Barbara Lee. Barbara Lee thought about it. But that was it for the longest time, and there's a handful of people now, Justin Amash, uh, Thomas Massey, uh, Rand Paul, Mike Lee. That would argue in that favor. But it's still only a handful compared to droves who are unwilling to take back the responsibility of such things. I personally think that they kind of like it in the hands of the president because now it's a political tool. Now one person can make that decision. One person can be the fuck-up. Excuse me. Pardon my French. And they can use that to fuel elections. But that's just me. Now here's Mike Lee talking about the 
briefing that they received about Iran. We just left the briefing uh, and we were, we were talking about Iran. I, I want to state at the outset, I support President Trump. I support and respect the manner in which he has approached his commander-in-chief powers. I believe that more than any other president in my lifetime, President Trump has shown a lot of restraint. He's been reluctant to get us involved in wars all over the globe. He's been very mindful and respectful of the fact that when the American people are asked to give up blood and treasure, they're sending off their sons and their daughters, their moms and their dads into battlefield. And he's therefore very careful about it. I respect that enormously. My comments at the moment are not directed toward the attack that occurred on Friday. We'll leave that to another day. I will say that we were brought into this briefing today to talk to us about that attack on Friday. I ha had hoped and expected to receive more information outlining the legal, factual, and moral justification for the attack. I was left somewhat unsatisfied on that front. The briefing lasted only 75 minutes, whereupon our briefers left. This, however, is not the biggest problem I have with the briefing, which I would add was probably the worst briefing I've seen, at least on a military issue, in the nine years I've served in the United States Senate. What I found so distressing about that briefing was that one of the messages we received from the briefers was, do not debate, do not discuss the issue of the appropriateness of further military intervention against Iran. And that if you do, you'll be emboldening Iran. The implication being that we would somehow be making America less safe by having a debate or a discussion about the appropriateness of further military involvement against the government of Iran. Now, I find this insulting and demeaning, not, not personally, but to the office that each of the 100 senators in this building happens to hold. I find it insulting and I find it demeaning to the Constitution of the United States to which we've all sworn an oath. It is, after all, the prerogative of the legislative branch to declare war. Article 1, Section 8 makes that very clear. Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Number 69 made clear that this was a sharp contrast from the form of government that we had prior to the Revolution. A form of government in which the executive, the king, had the power to take us to war. He did not need the, the parliament to weigh in on it, to support it. That was the parliament's job after the fact, after we had gone into war. This, Hamilton explained in Federalist 69, is exactly the reason why this power was put in Article 1, Section 8, in the branch of government most accountable to the people at the most regular intervals. And I implore you to go onto YouTube or, or whatever your preferred news source is, you'll be able to find the full clip of Mike Lee talking about that. And I implore you to go listen to it because he clearly was not happy with what happened and how they were addressed, nor was Rand Paul. And you know what? You know what? If you're a limited government guy and you don't want bloodshed and you don't want another... 10-year-long bloody war in which Americans are sent to die for no good purpose for American self-defense. Maybe we need to think a little harder and a little smarter. Now, granted, 
in a couple weeks from now, this 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 take might sound like trash. There's a reason why I don't fire off the cuff on this stuff immediately. It's because I think hot takes are trash. You have to wait until you have more information. You have to wait to see how events play out. Now, a lot of people are asking me, because they know my libertarianish stance, how do you feel about Soleimani? How do you feel about that hit on Soleimani? It was a move that debatably could have sparked off a bigger conflict with Iran, but it appears as though Iran's a bit shaky now and, and reeling because of it. And much like Chuck Schumer suggested, nobody should be mourning the death of Soleimani. Now, much like I say about anything else, I don't think we should be sitting here celebrating in the streets. But I don't think it's mourn-worthy. It's definitely not to the extent that I've seen some of uh, our more prominent Hollywood progressives crying and apologizing to Iran on behalf of uh, our terrible president whom we're trying to remove. Get over yourself. Soleimani was a bad guy. Did America do bad things up till now? Yeah. Do I want America in that region? I think you guys very well know that I think we should pull out from that region and not be a driving force there whatsoever. For those of you who would say uh, that uh, the Russians or China would step in and take over and probably resolve the issue and then solidify themselves as a major world power for doing something America could not, I think that's foolish. I think that they're sitting back because we're there. They know we're there. They know we have this big conquest about taking the Middle East and instilling a little westernized democracy hoping that uh, it sticks and it takes, and uh, lots of times it just doesn't. For the Middle East to get straightened out, there's going to be pretty long, drawn-out, bloody conflict. Whether it's America driving that force or not, I've been saying, Bernie Sanders has been saying, a bunch of other people have been saying, Tulsi Gabbard has been saying, Justin Amash has been saying, Thomas Massey has been saying, Rand Paul has been saying, Mike Lee has been saying, other people have been saying that it has to come from within that region. So why are we wasting American lives and American resources, and why are people so gung-ho for it? Why are people so hell-bent on America being in that region of the world. It's not our region. It's not our soil. It's not our people. You're talking about a country in which it's legal to cast gays off of rooftops or hang them or stone them to death. Yeah, I kind of don't care what they do over there. And I kind of don't want to have American blood spilt over it. Just not interested. So people need to figure out what exactly the arguments are and what's going on here. Because you can be against the executive branch of government having such 
imminent power to do as it pleases? I don't think you're wrong for saying that it should, that a lot of it should, go back to the debate stage in the House, in the Senate. That's what I think. That's a long, drawn-out subject. But I got it off my chest. (laughs) I got it off my chest. So guys... That's going to do it for me for this week. I want to invite you to, 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 to do something, though. I just started up a Patreon account. So if you're a fan of this program, if you've been a fan of this program, if you're listening, if you're interested, and you think, hmm, I would like to contribute to, to his program, I'd like to help him out a little bit, I'm starting a Patreon. And, and right now, I ha- it's experimental. It's out there. I have, a, there, I have a, uh, a, a tier system set up, but it's only one level right now. It's a $5 a month donation. And for $5 a month, my goal is to see if I can get up to $150, which covers the cost of uh, maintaining FritzCast. Literally, that's my upload fees for uh, SoundCloud right now $150 for the year it's actually just slightly ever so much over because I rounded it up from being a $12 expense to a $15 expense but uh, you know it's experimental anyway if you want to contribute $5 I'm going to include the link to my Patreon here in the podcast click on that I I implore you if you wish to do it it's up to you this program is still remaining ad free as of right now there's no sponsors We're, we're ad free I'm going to continue to bring this program to you for free, but I'm starting to look and experiment with ways that I can expand the program. If you know, if if it gets some good feedback and all that, I might do multiple tiered systems, and maybe there will be some goodies in there. Like you know, maybe you get a complimentary Fritzcast bumper sticker, or maybe I start making more memes or something. You know, uh, just something to throw out there. Uh, you know, I want to expand. I want to do more. I want to do. Video. I want to do audio. I want to do guest interviews. I want to do all this stuff. So I'm looking forward to doing that. So that link will be in the description. You can follow me on Twitter at FritzQS, Facebook.com slash the FritzCast, FritzCast Podcast at gmail.com if you want to get in touch with me personally. Guys, remember I love you. I want you to have a good week. And you will most definitely be hearing from me again next week. Until then, love, peace, and think about what people are asking for in these arguments. Step back, really analyze some of the stuff. All right? Love you. See you next week.